0: at christiancrusaders.org. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. Here's our host, Matt Reister, the Executive Director of Christian Crusaders.
1: Hey everybody, Matt Reister with the CC Podcast Conversations. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Matt. How are you? Good. We just rolled into Lexington, Kentucky. We're at the 2022 Consumer uh, Christian Products Expo. Yep. And it's first time we've been to this conference. Ten plus hours in the car, but we made it. Found out about it from Joyce Barbati, owner of TJ's Christian Bookstore. Just saw Joyce down there. Excellent. And uh, she's out scouting content for her bookstore. And we're out scouting content. She's con- been a sponsor of, of some of our uh, content before. So check her out, make sure. For sure. she. Uh, we're we're going to be scouting out content of our own. We've got 18 interviews lined up. But today we're going to do an interview or you're going to hear an interview after this kind of intro with a guy named Alex McFarlane just last week I was with Alex at the 101st Cedar Falls Bible Conference and hit it off with Alex great guy, yep. great interview, very smart the guy could talk and talk yep. about anything Right. you listened to that interview didn't I you? I did and um, we, we'll say up front that it gets into some politics but not it's not partisan politics. I don't think. I think it's. It's. We stick pretty well um, with with the idea that you uh, that that faith should be a part of every every bit of your life, including how you vote. Uh, and so that's. We want to just throw that out there, though. That, that it does come from uh, from sort of one side of, of things, but it is is absolutely uh, biblically based, and we do encourage you well, to, the, to, to follow the, through with that. The way we got into that was talking about the worldview of our founders Yeah. and how some of the stuff that we're living in, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, independent or libertarian, whatever, some of the stuff we're talking about in our culture today is totally ridiculous and way out of line yeah. with where our founders, even the ones that weren't maybe Christian, but were... Judeo-Christian in their approach. Right, or and their values, yeah. They never set this thing up so that we'd be talking about 72 genders. I mean, come on. No. That's ridiculous. Right. And I don't think we should be ashamed to say that because it's been hijacked by, quote-unquote, the political arena. That's a biblical concept. God created Adam and Eve, yep. and that's the end of the story. And so Alex and I, he does worldviews stuff, Right. And he's got a radio program where he does Exploring the Word weekly or daily on American Family Radio. So we covered a bunch of different stuff, and some of it might seem on the surface to be political in nature, and I would say it's biblical worldview stuff. Yeah. I'll say this about Alex, uh, and I talked about this in the, in the interview a little bit. I had no idea who he was before he came, yeah. and he did a great job with our kids, but we're bringing him back Next year. In fact, his assistant already called me last week to just say, hey, we want to be in touch. And I'm really excited about establishing a relationship with him because he's going to be a great asset to the Bible conference. Yeah, excellent. This interview is going to be a great asset yeah, to Christian Crusaders. Yeah. And uh, we went to lunch, a group of us, one of those days when he was at the Bible conference. We were at Buffalo Wild Wings. Yeah. And he started talking about Elvis. We talked about the movie, the Elvis movie. Yeah, uh-huh. Yep. He knows somebody who's close to Elvis. He's a big Buddy Holly fan, so we yep. wanted to go see yep. Clear Lake. Yep. And uh, this dude was just spitting facts yeah. at lunch. I mean, he's like a walking encyclopedia. <laughs> and finally, I just stopped and said, like, do you just know a lot about Elvis and Buddy Holly, or do you just know a lot about everything? Yeah. And, of course, he's too humble to say what was obvious. But the people we were at lunch with were like, dude, this guy's mine is never ending. And so I'm glad that we'll get a piece of that here on this interview. Yeah. So enjoy the interview with Alex McFarland and check him out and stay tuned for more from him whether it be through the CC podcast or the Cedar Falls Bible Conference and thanks for tuning in. Hey everybody, Matt Reester with the CC Podcast Conversations. Today I've got with me Alex McFarland. And uh, I got to tell you how I came to sit down with Alex. We're at the Cedar Falls Bible Conference. We're on location. their 101st gathering. And Alex was actually brought in by Dave Glander. You can actually hear a couple podcast interviews I've had with Dave in previous episodes from last year and at the NRB convention in March. And uh, Dave is running our junior and senior high ministry. He did that last year did a great job last year. So we invited him back from Reasons for Hope, and he put together this slate of speakers that I've since learned is a world-class slate of speakers, not the least of which is Alex McFarland here, but I'm ashamed to say, and I had to apologize to Alex. i I never really heard of him, and I didn't realize what I was missing until I had people calling me saying, I see that Alex McFarland's coming to the Bible Conference, where can we hear him speak? And I said, oh, he's over with the junior high and high school kids. And they're like, what? He's not at the adult stage. And I I quickly did some research and realized this guy could have done the entire Bible conference in the adult sessions for the whole week. And so we're going to bring him back next year. Lord willing, I mean, the invitation's there and we're going to back it up as long as he can make room in his schedule for us. Alex, thanks for your time. Not just being here this week. And I, I just think it reveals your heart to say, yeah, I'll go over in the retreat house and talk to junior and senior high kids and not get paid that much. Uh, but we'll make it up to you over time.
2: Oh, Matt, it is such a blessing to be with you. And first of all, thank you for your friendship. And you and I, in these few days together, I, I feel like I've known you my whole life. I awesome. just feel like I've got a dear old friend. But thanks for having me on the show today.
1: Just a couple minutes ago, you were finishing up, you recorded or you called in to do your daily radio program, Exploring the Word?
2: Yes, yes. On
1: American Family Radio. Right. And so you were gracious to let me kind of sit in on that and watch how you do all that. Uh, Let's just start right there. What is Exploring the Word? If people don't know about it, how can they listen to it and uh, get tuned in to Alex McFarland.
2: Oh, well, thanks very much. Well, Exploring the Word is a Bible teaching show that we do actually live five days a week, Monday through Friday. And sometimes we're not live. It's rare like Christmas or something like that. But, you know, about 99.9% of the time we are live. And um, the American Family Radio Network is a Christian radio network that I believe there's a station in Waverly, Ohio.
1: Waverly, Iowa.
2: Iowa. I'm sorry, Iowa. I got to
1: stop you and tell you a joke. Okay. <laughs> um, there's a, it's not a joke. There's a t-shirt that people wear around here that says the University of Iowa, okay. Idaho City, Ohio. Because everybody mixes up Iowa, Ohio, and Idaho.
2: Do they really? <laughs> well, you know what? I was, I was in Ohio. Uh, there's Miami University. Miami of Ohio. Right. And they gave me a t-shirt and I would wear this Miami University and people would say, hey, how's the beach? Well, it was Ohio, but (laughs) we're in Iowa, and American Family Radio is heard here, apparently. They're in a couple of hundred cities. But let me just say this, God is so good, Matt, um, with all my heart. The Lord knows I'm being sincere with you. I've been to a lot of camps, a lot of conferences, a lot of auditoriums, a lot of gatherings over the last 20 years. It's all good. I don't know when I've ever been at a place where the Holy Spirit was so strongly present here as the Cedar Falls Bible Conference. Everybody is so friendly there. I don't know, last night I was here for the main worship session, and there's just hundreds and hundreds of people praising God, young people that are eager for the Scriptures, and uh, for anybody listening, and if you've never experienced Cedar Falls Bible Conference, it's the top of the list, my friend, and I've, I've made the rounds. This place is wonderful, and I know God is using you and your wife uh, in leadership in a very wonderful way, and I commend you.
1: That's kind of you to say we're really, really excited because, well, first of all, anything that lasts 101 years is not humanly explainable. I mean, so there has been a laundry list of leaders who have helped keep this thing on the tracks, and really, I mean, theologically where I'm at, it's not even the leaders that kept it on the tracks. It's God who through the leaders, kept it on the tracks. And that's really what keeps me from thinking too highly of myself. I mean, it's just like, I'm one more cog in the wheel. And for whatever reason, God decided to set this place apart. We call it the Riverview Conference Center grounds. That's the place that this sits on. And we call it a place set apart. And Mm. um, we've had a couple preachers in the past who've just kind of described, you know, sometimes in scripture, God chooses a location and blesses it. We don't know why. And we feel like, I mean, it sounds maybe a little kooky to some people, but we feel like he has done that on these 27 acres. And we're really, really excited because after some years of transition and maybe after some years of kind of, kind of, you know, slowing down and how do you take this to the next generation? Uh, we've got a great board of directors. We've got a great team putting this conference on. And really we're in the process of dreaming and thinking and planning about how we can make this entire facility year-round where we want to pattern ourselves in a way after the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove where they've got a year-round schedule of conferences, retreats, concerts uh, and we believe that as the culture is more and more hostile to the Word of God, to the Gospel, uh, places like this that put their stake in the ground on the truth of God's Word are going to be in demand because there's still mm. a remnant looking to be refreshed, encouraged, shaped, challenged by, by his word.
2: You, you know, it's amazing you would mention the Cove because I was there exactly, exactly a month ago. Wow. The Billy Graham Training Center. You know what? I would suspect, and and we'll only know this when we get to heaven, I'm sure, probably many, many, many years ago, maybe 200 years ago, somebody walked these grounds and prayed. Wow. Let me give you an example. I'm from North Carolina. Largest city in the state is Charlotte. Um, Some of your listeners maybe know about Charlotte. Well, anyway, so I love old books. And I got this book a few years ago about the Carolina Great Awakening. Now, a Great Awakening is like a major move of God. and, And one of the most famous, Matt, is probably the Great Awakening, 1748 to 1760 under a guy named Jonathan Edwards, Mm -hmm. and um, we could do a whole show about that, but a lot of um, people about 50 years later in the early 1800s, they were saying, gee, we need another one of these great revivals, you know. Well, in the Carolinas, there was um, in the early 1800s um, a revival where 20,000 people gathered for a week to pray, for the gospel in America. This was around 18, I think about 1805 to 1810. Mm-hmm. But in Charlotte, one particular spring in the very early 1800s, they said 20,000 people were gathered for a whole week just to To pray, and they said after the sun would go down, uh, bonfires were visible, and people of all denominations—the Methodists, the Baptists, the Wesleyans, the Presbyterians—everybody in beautiful harmony would quietly sing and pray. Said while the children played, the parents were reading the scriptures. Amazing. Now, what what's really wild is uh, about 15 years ago, my wife and I lived in Charlotte for a little while, and we met. Um, around the uh, the outskirts of Charlotte, there was this farm. And this lady, um, she remarked, she said, you know, we're we're always getting people stopping and they'll pull their car over and they'll just want to walk around our our pasture. She said, I've never understood it. She said, it's like this um, holy ground. And people frequently will say, I'm sorry, I just, I felt peace. And I just want to stop here and kind of drink it in a few moments. Well, we later learned that this big open pasture where people inexplicably felt drawn was where that Carolina Great Awakening, 200 years prior, 20,000 people had met there. Now, it's interesting. A couple of miles from that spot was born and raised Billy Graham a young man you might have heard of named Billy Graham wow and they're one of the big original oldest Christian radio networks originated there there were at one uh, count seven Bible colleges and seminaries in close proximity now all that to say this I'm with you that God very often this the Holy Spirit does things territorially wow um you have a conference center here that has blessed my heart. I've been here a couple of days and i've I'll fly out later tomorrow i I would not be one bit surprised wow. that when you get to heaven, you're going to find out that this ground was consecrated for the Lord's use by saints of God many 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 years ago.
1: that is wild
2: you you see what I'm saying? Oh yeah. this is God's property
1: yeah. That's amazing. Well, we're we're really excited about what the kind of revitalization we've seen over the last few years and and honestly, you don't know this, but you're stepping into this at this has been an incredible week as we've just seen people to a whole new a whole new level catch the vision. We've heard truth proclaimed with a whole new level of boldness. We had a guy in here on Tuesday night Phil Hopper who, and, and the place had 850 people in it, mm. which is a full crowd. And he preached for an hour and a half, and almost no one moved.
2: Amen. And,
1: I mean, he was saying stuff that needs to be said that isn't being said these days. And it's just people are hungry for this stuff. And uh, so we're really, really excited. And, and, I mean, honestly, one of the highlights has been my meeting you because, I mean, I'm going to work real hard to make sure that we get you back here. Girl, and and here. tap into the things the Lord's using you for.
2: Well, brother, I'm just honored. You know, Matt, I, I'm I'm so th- thankful that the Lord would love me and that at 21 I was a college student, and and I was a church member. I was 13 when I joined the church down south in the Bible Belt. I mean, everybody goes to church, or it yeah. seemed like, but but I didn't really know the Lord Jesus in a personal way till I was 21, and I was in college, and and God's been so good to me, and I I just to preach and be a witness for the gospel is an honor beyond words so anything you need you you just call brother i'll do anything for love you it. but isn't it amazing that the lord would use us
1: it is i mean i was i was standing up there the other night and uh to, you know when you just slow down and think about whether it's Christian Crusaders Radio and Internet Ministry an 86-year-old radio ministry... Praise God. ...that has stayed faithful to the Word, or whether it's the Bible conference here. And I know there, there's all kinds of stuff like this around the country. I mean, we're not anything terribly special, but to be able to be allowed by God to step into the stream of people who He has entrusted something so precious to is awesome. Amen. And, um, and yeah, humbling and inspiring and all that so
2: well one of my favorite verses is first 1 Corinthians 1558 that says your labor in the Lord is not in vain and you know like you say we are entrusted with this mm-hmm. and to everybody that might hear this you know um, maybe you're serving in ministry or maybe you're just ministering to a family member maybe you're a witness to a neighbor on your street or maybe you're you know, an intercessor and you're praying for things, but you know, the beautiful thing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We have that promise from God that the world might dismiss it. Oh, you're insignificant, what you're doing, what does it matter? It really matters. And I, I take great joy in the fact that our Lord has promised us as a believer, the things that we do for Christ and for the gospel, uh, it matters, it mm-hmm. counts for eternity. It is not in vain.
1: That's awesome. So I want to jump around a little bit, and you'll figure out my interview style is not real systematized in any way. <laughs> uh, but we were having some great conversation at lunch today, and uh, we talked about, talk, talk, you found out that we were an hour and a half from Clear Lake. So oh, yeah. what, what does Clear Lake, Iowa mean to you?
2: Well, what I know about Clear Lake, I've never been there before, um, but that was where Buddy Holly famed guitarist from the 1950s, played his final show. They were on the Winter Dance Party Tour. There was uh, Richie Valens, uh, J.P., the Big Bopper Richardson, and Buddy Holly. And after they played at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, they were supposed to ride a bus uh, to their next city, but they chartered a plane, and a young pilot named Roger Peterson was flying. Everybody knows it's been in countless films and... Don McLean's famous song, American Pie, chronicled this. But Clear like Iowa, in a cornfield, they crashed on a February night. And um, I, I thought, well, if I'm close enough, I'm going to drive up there and see that. But I'm not going to make it this trip, but maybe some other trip.
1: How did you come to be a Buddy Holly fan?
2: Oh, great question. Well, I have an older sister, Caroline um, my sister, I love so much. My goodness, she's five years older than me, and I always remind her that she's older, you know. <laughs> but um, I kind of got my musical taste from my sister, and she's a wonderful Christian lady. But growing up, she was always buying records, you know. And she bought that iconic single "American Pie," you know, by Don, Don McLean. Yeah, the day the music died. Yeah. Um, and I thought, the day the music died. Well, music isn't dead. There's still music, and I was probably five or six at that point and so we we would go to the public library i love to go to the library and my mother who was a school teacher um we went to the library and i just started trying to find out what did that song mean the day the music died and you know i was just a first or second grader and i just start doing some research trying to figure out uh, the don mclean song and uh, my sister and i there, there was a drugstore back east called Eckerd Drugstore. Jack Eckerd actually was a big donor to Billy Graham. Um, and then later, Chuck Colson, some you remember him. But the Eckerd Drugstore had record albums. And so I got Buddy Holly's Greatest Hits. It was a record album for like $4.99. How old were you? Uh, by the time I got the Buddy Holly record, probably 10.
1: Okay. Formative. Yeah, formative. That's but, when I got my first Def Leppard album. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> so I know
2: I'm way older than you. But um, you know what I did? Like, we had a piano because my grandmother, both grandmothers lived with us. You, you remember that show, The Waltons? Oh, yeah. You know, Night Grandma, Night Down Boy. That was like our family <laughs> because um, my grandmothers lived with us. Um, my grandparents, grandfather and grandmother on my dad's side lived with us. Although my grandfather passed away. And then... Um, my mom's mom lived with us. So we had a piano because my grandparents could play the piano. And I was poking around and uh, my sister had the Beach Boys Greatest Hits. First song on that was Surfing Safari. And it was like, wait, this note seems to correspond with that. Well, it was in the key of A. I learned a lot of Buddy Holly songs were in A. Wow. So I was just obsessed with music and I began to noodle around on the piano. and little by little I begin to figure these songs out. Some of your listeners that are musically inclined you'll know what a one, four, five song is. So the root and I'm gonna take this to Christianity here in a minute, but <laughs> chords are generally three notes. That's called a triad, mm-hmm. like C E G. That's a, a three note chord. And I began to learn music by listening to Buddy Holly and, you know, um the Beach Boys and Elvis and the Beatles and the Monkeys and Herman's Hermits and all the stuff. Well, um, anyway, music was a big part of our life. And, uh, you know, I, you know, just, if I was going to learn the song, I had to learn the one who performed it. But let me change gears. Psalm 19 says the heavens and earth bear witness to the glory of God. Um, R.C. Sproul said, all truth is God's truth. Yeah. And there's also not only truth, but the philosophers talk about beauty. Yeah. And things that we think are beautiful actually are pointing us to the one who is the source of all beauty, which is God. Yeah. And the way music points to God and I think is reflective of our Creator. I mean, everything in this world has a certain threeness about it. Wow, the yeah. The Trinity. Yep. Okay, there's Father, Son, Holy Ghost, the Trinity. But there's past, present, future. There's length, width, height. Even music is triune. Mm. Chords are virtually always three note chords. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. And, and I begin, and plays aesthetics there's a three-act play there's you know um, a theme a complication and a resolution yeah um, so and and I think whatever your pursuit of life if you're you know in science or medicine uh, or education I mean the doctor is a physician Jesus is the great physician educators try to teach but Christ is the the teacher farmers, uh, they can look to the One who is the Good Shepherd. You see my point? Yeah. It all points to God. The meaning of life is to know Jesus Christ our Savior. And a big part of, of this, in my, me, I did love music. And invariably, I start. we didn't have any sheet music, but we had an old hymn book. Mm. So I started trying to figure that stuff out, and I did. Well, I began to read those words. And I remember one time, I was a little kid, and I, I read, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and mm. did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Mm. And I, I remember thinking, what does that mean? Uh, would he devote that sacred head? You know, it's about the cross. Mm-hmm. And I I began to really get into hymn lyrics. That's and I, awesome. You know, I mean, I'm just rambling about how God began to get my attention. But isn't it a beautiful thing how... Through life, through our experiences, if we allow it, God is calling out to us.
1: Yeah, my wife uh, homeschooled our kids, or homeschools our kids, with a classical model, and so the trivium—truth, uh, goodness, beauty—and the idea being that you don't you don't take a secular education and just tack God onto it, but God is at the center of if you understand math and its greatness, it reflects the glory of God. Oh, absolutely. If, if you understand science and history and, and believe me, I'm not I'm not an academic and I'm not a intellectual, so I don't totally get that in my own personal experience. But the idea being that and this this touches on the conversation we we're having about music at lunchtime, which is even things that weren't intended to be quote unquote Christian can in some aspects, reflect the glory of God, the they, truth they do. of God.
2: They do. Uh, and, you know, I'm glad you bring up you know truth, goodness, beauty, and math. In a non-theistic world, we would not have mathematics. Hmm. Okay. Um, now, when we say theism, we're talking about the fact that God exists. Uh, Christian theism says God exists and we can know him. But look, you know, math is orderly. absolute. Uh, It's objective. You know, I I would never say, you know, in my opinion, two plus two is four. Right. It's it's not my opinion. It's fact, you know. And so whenever I debate at universities, Matt, every now and then, you know, the atheists will say, well, you know, um, I only believe science, the physical science. Well, so you're telling me that math is not scientific because math is objective, absolute, and it is definitely non-physical. You can't go get a pound of nine. (laughs) You know, I mean, (laughs) so uh, math, I've had more than a few academics say to me that they became open to the idea that there must be a God because of the absolute objective nature of mathematics. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a random, purposeless, unordered universe, we wouldn't have a lot of things, but we wouldn't have math. Yeah. You know, math proves there's a God.
1: You bring up uh, going around and speaking at colleges and you're an apologist. And even on that radio program that I just listened to you record or it wasn't recorded, it was just live, uh, you were taking phone calls. What are some of the most common questions you get from people, whether you're at a college campus debating or whether, you know, what are the most perplexing questions that people face? And... You've been at this for a while. Have those questions shifted? And if so, why? Or if not, mm-hmm. why not?
2: Great question. Well, you know, Matt, I think the, the most common questions are questions related to why do bad things happen. Yeah. You know, if, if God loves me, why am I hurting? You know, if if God is, is all-powerful, like you Christians say, um, why doesn't He end pain and suffering? Yeah. Um, You know, on 9-11, the terrorists flew airplanes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Why didn't God just put those airplanes on the ground? Mm -hmm. He could have. And so the problem of pain. Now, the ways we answer those are, you know, very myriad. And you and I know that there's sin in the world. Yep. And sin doesn't mean there's no such thing as God. Sin and evil and violence just shows how desperately we need a savior, mm-hmm. you know? I was debating an atheist and he said, um, and this was kind of his powerful statement in his part of this debate. We were, I think it was this debate in South Dakota, Silver, Silverfish, South Dakota, Black Hills State University, I debated an atheist. He said, I look at the world and I say, things ought not be this way. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know… So does God. Yes. (laughs) God looked at the world. I I love the last verse of the book of Jonah. Uh, God says to Jonah about the Ninevites, He says, shouldn't I have compassion on these people? They don't know their right hand from their left. And and God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God looked at this world and said… I'm going to have compassion. Those those fallen people need a Savior. Mm-hmm. And, Matt, I'm so glad that we serve the one. If we will put our faith in Jesus, be born again, and he's coming one day. It may be very soon. But we serve the God who says, behold, I make all things new.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: There will be no more tears, no more death, no more sin. All the crooked will be made straight. And so I just want to say maybe somebody hearing this, is kind of having a tough day yeah. on the struggle bus, as they say. <laughs> we we serve a God who says, I'm coming back, and I will receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. Uh-huh. So sin doesn't prove there's no such thing as God, but sin does prove that we're broken, and, and we need God to fix us.
1: For sure. So if someone were to ask you, but it's funny, my dad... And my mom once in a while asked me, so people ask us what you do, and we don't really know what to say because it's a (laughs) bunch of different stuff. We own a fireworks store. We run a couple of ministries, whatever, whatever. Um, What were you going to say? Well,
2: that was like my my dear mother. She's in heaven now, but uh, she died seven years ago, and it worried her to death that I don't have a job, (laughs) 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 quote, unquote. You know what (laughs) I mean? Yeah,
1: totally. (laughs) So if somebody were to say, Alex McFarland, what do you do? I mean, you're involved with a bunch of different stuff, but how would you kind of summarize it?
2: Well, I'm an evangelist. You know, um, I was a youth pastor for 11 years on the staff of a church back in North Carolina, and I've I've been a pastor. But um, we we started to put on events. One of the reasons I really love what you do is because we, in my hometown of Greensboro, North Carolina, we rented this local auditorium and we brought in Coach Tom Landry. You remember mm. the, the oh, yeah. Dallas Cowboys? Cowboys. Yeah. And we had a band. We had this. There was a group. I, I would I would be certain they've probably been here. Point of Grace. Do you remember them?
1: Yeah, I think they have.
2: Yeah. Yep. A, a Female band. Yep. So um, we tried We put on an event like 8000 people came out. I was like, wow, I like this. And then we did. Uh, we brought in Josh McDowell mm-hmm. and James Dobson. And so we called our conferences Truth for a New Generation. And. At this point, we've um, done 49 conferences. We've had as low as 550 people, as high as 8,000. We average about 3,000 attendees. But um, after a while, my wife said, um, you know, something, either you're going to be a youth pastor or you're going to run these conferences. Yeah. You know, and so it was a big step of faith. But um, in addition to doing... Three or four, you know, major conferences a year. Um, I travel and preach, and churches would call and say, "Would you come preach a revival, or would you do a biblical worldview mm-hmm. thing?" And then uh, Dr. Dobson put me on the radio, and I began to work uh, for folks on the family, writing curriculum. And when was that? Uh, Two thousand three.
1: So I, I worked for the Iowa Family Policy Center. Oh, sure, yeah. So Focus on the Family started all those FPCs. Yeah, sure.
2: And you you probably know um, either Tom Minnery or Tony Perkins or yep. Debbie
1: Chavez. Yep. And so the the Iowa FPC is now the family leader. It's under new leadership, but I, but I worked there for about seven years. Mm-hmm. And um, so were you working on the policy side or on the ministry side? On the
2: ministry side. Um although I was frequently called upon either to do media interviews and occasionally do research for, you know, biblical worldview issues like um, traditional marriage and sanctity of human life. And I began to do a lot of research, Matt, on religious freedom. And one of my favorite subjects that I've written on somewhat extensively is natural law, objective morality, how our constitution was based really on the belief that all people have a moral law written on their heart, Mm -hmm. and uh, the the basic moral precepts would be life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. So I'm I'm thrilled to hear that you've been involved with the the Family Policy Councils, started by that, that visionary godly leader James Dobson. You You stay in touch with him?
1: Oh yeah. What's he up to? He's on Family Talk.
2: Family Talk um, which he started about probably about 2011 or 2012 and um, you know I did some contract work for him. He asked me to move to Colorado and go to work for him under that umbrella and we were looking after my mother and my mother-in-law and I told him I said I I just can't move right now Um, but He's um, cut back a lot because he's in his 80s. Still does a few shows a month for Family Talk. Uh, mm-hmm. But just the greatest guy in the world. I mean, really. And, you know, he was my boss and my friend. But I, I put Dr. Dobson up there with Billy Graham. I yeah. mean, I really do.
1: I was raised on radio. So okay. it was. there's a radio station out of Des Moines, 50,000 Watt or whatever you call them. But WHO Radio. Mm-hmm. And they were uh, the radio station that had uh, news and talk, and they were the home and away voice of the Iowa Hawkeyes. Okay, sure. And then, and then a local radio station that had Swindoll and Dobson and Tony Evans, and so that my mom was death on television, and so I don't think we had a TV that we owned in our house until I was like in 7th grade. Right. But uh, a lot of great ministry that came out of Dobson and focused on the family, Colorado Springs. And oh, yeah.
2: Well, y- you know, um, just a... Uh, uh, Kind of American history in a nutshell, you know. You know, if you look at 1960 versus 1970, uh, there was a massive paradigm shift in that brief 10-year period. I mean, when when 1960 came along, you know, you've got Lucy and Ricky um, on television, not even sleeping in the same bed, but in twin beds. (laughs) By 10 years later. 1970, you've got the Woodstock generation, a flag burning, Kent State. You've got um, no fault divorce, ab- abortion on demand, um, and the stage was being set for Roe versus Wade. Sue Weddington sued um, Henry Wade, the D.A. of Dallas, Texas, uh, demand, and she was a Methodist pastor's daughter demanding the right to abort a baby she conceived while she was in law school. And I mean, what for those that wonder why conservatives and Christians are, you know, concerned about the culture, Matt, as you know, for five decades now, we have had this drift away, not only away from, you know, religion impacting our culture, but just uh, uh, getting away from moral boundaries. And here we are in 2022. And I mean, y- you want to get knocked off of Twitter. And I know this because this has happened to me on several times. If, if you put on Twitter, a man is not a woman.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you'll, your account will be locked for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Do you know what? Um, let me give you. Um, uh, I've got a friend, Eric Metaxas. And Eric said to me just about a week ago, we were on a show together and he said, the social media overlords are engaging in censorship on a daily basis. Um, There was a a black Democrat Senator from Georgia named John Lewis, and he was a Christian. And he um, marched with Dr. King and Mm -hmm. the the civil rights movement of the sixties, I've written about extensively. And um, I would encourage everybody to read Dr. King's Pulitzer Prize-winning book of 1963, Why We Can't Wait. I'll tell you why. Dr. King's book, Why We Can't Wait, was really the manifesto of the Civil Rights Movement, thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly Christian. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he quotes St. Augustine. He quotes Thomas Aquinas. He quotes the Founders. He quotes the Bible. And the whole Civil Rights Movement said, look, man is... Man is made in God's image, and uh, we, we can't marginalize one segment of human beings because we're all made in God's image, and Dr. King's Southern Christian Leadership Coalition, they vetted out the people who were going to march with Dr. King. And, they, and if you look at the punch list of things that you had to agree to, number one, I will meditate daily on the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Wow. Oh, thoroughly Christian. Well, anyway, John Lewis was one of Dr. King's um, colleagues, along with Fred Shuttlesworth, a great Christian in Birmingham, Alabama, who the airport is named for Fred Shuttlesworth. Anyway, so when John Lewis died a couple of years ago, I, I said, I, I typed on Twitter and Facebook, Uh, May God bless the memory of this man. He was um, a Democrat, and I'm not, but I respect him. He was a devout Christian. John Lewis stood for God and country. I I, I thought it was pretty nice, praised him. Boom. You have put objectionable speech up there. You can't. And so for like 48 hours, my Twitter and Facebook was frozen. Now, let me give you the flip side of that. So I was on some show and I was being interviewed, I forget what it was, cause I mean, I've done a lot of shows. Anyway, somebody tweeted, Alex McFarland is homophobic. Hey, a million bucks for the first person who can shoot this blankety blank blank. Wow. And there were all these other people- So like
1: basically a bounty on your head.
2: Exactly, right. So then a number of other people chimed in and said, um, yeah, why can't somebody shoot this blankety blank? Yep. M- meaning myself. Yep. And there were a number of tweets and reposts in like manner. Said, yeah, I've watched him on Fox News. Alex McFarlane is an arrogant, uh, transphobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, uh, white nationalist, Trump. Blah blah blah. Yeah, somebody should shoot this guy. All right, I get a call from the Greensboro police department and said, uh, Reverend McFarland on social media, they're jokingly talking about who's going to get a million dollars to be the first person that can put a bullet in you. Do you feel like you need protection? Police department calls me. I was like, uh, no, look, I'm, I'm not worried about that, but thanks anyway. So I called up Twitter and said, Hey, you know, look at this thread. Yeah. I said, look, I can tweet a Bible verse and I get frozen. Do you think that maybe under your big umbrella of objectionable speech, this? And I get this auto thing, email, and it says, um, look, we know a lot of things are said, uh, you know, in a jocular vein, jocular, people are kidding. Um, and we monitor this heavily. We take the greatest concern, but, um, if, if, if it's not taken down, it did not violate our speech code. <laughs> so here, here's my point about the inequity of the day. And it, look, it doesn't matter to me. I belong to Jesus. Amen. There's not a hair on my head endangered till Christ is through with me. That's but right. But my point is, you can post Bible verses from Romans 1 and 2, and that's objectionable. Yep. But you can joke about shooting a minister, and that's not objectionable that's proof that we need a revival in our country.
1: As we talk about this stuff, so this ministry right here, Christian Crusaders Radio and Internet Ministry, we have, for 86 years, basically, I've found some old sermons that have touched on political issues, but basically steered clear of political things and focused on the truth of God's word, the gospel, et cetera. Um, and like I said, we've touched on some of it, you know. and I get it, and I've kind of submitted to that, and we're going to continue along that vein, but so many of these issues, you know, even some that you that you just mentioned in passing, are primarily biblical issues that have been hijacked by the political class. And so, what wisdom do you give to Christians who are wanting to keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is the gospel, the truth of God's word? But we're living in a increasingly complex world where these things are tangential to each other all the time. They're always touching each other. Um, you know. But we don't wanna become voice boxes for the latest political cause and thereby lose our voice as ambassadors for Christ. How, how do you navigate that or coach people to navigate that?
2: Oh, great question, profound question, because for sure, for sure, the job one is the Great Commission. You know, yep. uh, and I, I had a young minister sort of uh, gently reprimand me the other day and say, well, you know, God didn't call me to make Americans. God called me to make disciples. <laughs> and, and I get that, of course. But, but you know, we, we have a free America because of the involvement of Christians. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, really. Um, 354 to 430 A.D., there was a really smart guy named Augustine. Uh, really smart. Uh, I happen to think one of the smartest mortals that ever lived. And uh, Augustine wrote a work that came to be known as City of God. Mm-hmm. And basically, Augustine said that until we get to the city of God, we have an obligation to the city of man. I mean, we, we really do. And uh, there was a colonial statesman named Edmund Burke. This is why Christians really ought to care about politics and be involved. And, and again, not to the exclusion of the gospel, the yep. front burner issue is to win the lost and make disciples. But Edmund Burke said, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And see, there, there is no such thing as a cultural vacuum. If we, the church, retreat from the public square, something will fill it. It will not be neutral. And the Marxists, the Libertines, the Hedonists, the uh, sexual revolutionaries, look, if, if the people who believe in God and morality and patriotism, if we don't keep our hands on the steering wheel, others quickly will. Right. and. So uh, I say to pastors who, many pastors piously say, well, you know, I don't, I don't sully myself with commenting on politics. Uh, yeah, well, your, your right to freely preach the gospel won't be around forever if we don't stay informed, vote, and encourage our p- parishioners to vote, and vote godly.
1: What is the status of religious liberty right now?
2: Uh, it's, it's very much in jeopardy.
1: I mean, people in America, maybe my age and older, cannot fathom that. I mean, it, and so I think that it doesn't get taken seriously because you're like, what do you mean religious liberties in jeopardy? That, that's not possible. This is America. What are you talking about?
2: Well, um, by the way, the First Amendment, uh, very interesting. I've, uh, at 200 American universities, I've, I've raised this question, do you know who wrote the First Amendment? And I've yet, yet to have a faculty or a student know the answer to that question. Uh, I'll share it in a moment, but whenever I'll I'll be at a university and I'll say, you know, marriages between a man and a woman, and hands go up, and they'll say, look, no, don't impose your religious views on me. The First Amendment says Congress will make no law regarding the establishment of religion. Well, part of that famed non-establishment clause includes the words also that Congress will not prohibit the free exercise thereof, right? All right. I ask people, who wrote that First Amendment? Nobody ever knows. Well, it was a man named Fisher Ames, A-M-E-S. Fisher Ames was a devout Christian. Fisher Ames said that he wished that the Bible was taught in every public school. He said, because it is the best vehicle for teaching morality to young people. That's pretty much verbatim quote. Now. I'll say should we teach the Bible and biblical morality in public schools no are you crazy of course not say I'll say really why not well that would violate the First Amendment I'm like really isn't it interesting that twenty first century um, secularists know more about the application of the First Amendment than and the, the guy, guy who wrote, wrote the First Amendment yeah you see what I'm saying so here's the thing um, we uh, in in well I'm trying to think of uh, what to say here, because there's so much I could say, but religious freedom. In fact, there are lobbyists all the time that what you and I are doing, broadcasting, whether by radio, television, or podcast, the the idea to say that sinners must repent. Um, Do you know, right now, and I, I know many, many publishers, Romans 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians 6, and Leviticus 18 all are condemnations of homosexuality. There are groups that want to make it illegal for publishers to publish Bibles with those chapters in there. Wow. I mean, we are living in the age of censorship, and the more precise term would be viewpoint discrimination. So we ask: people, should kids be able to hear that 54 of the 56 signers of the Declaration were Christians? Uh, And should we be able to explain what that means because to understand our Constitution, it might behoove us to understand the worldview of those that gave us this free, safe, prosperous society. But you can't do that. Listen, um, I go in public schools and I'll quote the founders. I I don't even crack a Bible and I was interrupted. I was in Louisiana giving a talk on the Constitution And I'm simply quoting verbatim quotes of John Adams and George Washington. And I was interrupted mid-presentation by uh, the vice principal who said, time out, um, and whispered in my ear, said, you're about to cross that line. I said, cross what line? He said, well, you know, separation of church and state. (laughs) I I said, look, um, how could it be unconstitutional to quote our first president. You see what I mean? So folks, one of the ways that that Marxists take over is by revising history or keeping a people group ignorant of their history. One last thing, and I'll I'll throw it back to you, but there was a man around 1960, his name was Antonio Gromsky, he was a communist, and he challenged his fellow communists, because the, the idea that Europe or America could be brought to Marxism, oh, it's nearly unthinkable because of the church, right? Gromsky said, we must all make the long march through the institutions. Yep. Now, what he meant by that was that we have to, it's going to take time, let's take our Marxist views to the classroom, to the newsroom, to the public square, and dare we say, even to the seminaries and the churches. Now, you've got to hand it to them. Now, they, they invested 60-plus years in it, but the socialists have made the long march through the institutions. Who would have thought that a Bernie Sanders, an avowed socialist, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a, a very out way out front Marxist, uh, would have made it as far as they've made it? And look, I'm not demonizing them. I pray for them, I really do. But we're, to those, to your original question, Matt, to those who say, well, I'm a Christian, let's just pull back. I, I serve God, not man. Well, yeah, I hear you. But in the vacuum created by the absence of Christians, what's rushed in to take the place? Everything from socialists to unspeakably immoral, sexual revolutionaries. We've only got a short window of time. We must call our nation back to Christ and who's gonna do it if not the Christians.
1: Amen. You know, while you're going through all that stuff, it reminded me so many people who are my age or younger aren't even aware of even a, a fraction of what you've talked about. And one of the things we talked about is separation of church and state. I just had a conversation in the last week with somebody where this came up and I was reminded again, Oh my goodness, people have no idea that the way this is being taught is nowhere near what Jefferson meant in a personal letter to the Danbury Baptist. Walk us through that.
2: Well, I'm so glad you, you would mention that. By the way, if you go to the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol, there's uh, the rotunda and then there's what's called Statuary Hall, and every state can put two statues there. But as you walk down the hallway to the Capitol uh, or into the rotunda, there are uh, various statues. One of the very first that you'll come to is a statue of a dude named Roger Williams. Roger Williams is the founder of Rhode Island and the capital city. He named it Providence, as in the sovereign oversight of God, the providence of God. Well, Roger Williams had commented on the birth of America that the weaving into our government, principles of good civil government, wedded with principles of the bible and roger williams a baptist preacher who is in the u.s capitol statue uh, he said in america the wall of separation between the garden of the church and the egypt of the world god hath forever broken down understand um and and the seculars today have 180 degrees total inverse of this Williams was praising the biblical foundation of America. And by the way, if you're in that U.S. Capitol and you look up in the, the perimeter of the ceiling, there's something called a freeze, not frozen water, but a plaster thing. And you'll see a guy sitting there holding two tablets. And it's not Charlton Heston. It's <laughs> Moses holding the Decalogue, Right there's a courtroom right off the Capitol. The doors are probably four and a half to five feet wide, 11 feet tall, two doors, and guess what's on them? 10 commandments. Exodus 21 through 17, right? So Roger Williams, in commenting on America, he says, the wall of separation between the garden of the church and the Egypt of the world, God hath forever broken down, America, yay. So in, I believe it was, I think, 1803, The Danbury Baptists wrote to Thomas Jefferson, then president, who at that point I think was probably either ending his first term or beginning his second, and they had heard there was a rumor that a national denomination was going to be started that was, or or was going to be sanctioned the Congregationalists, like Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist, was a Congregationalist, and um, would Congregationalism be the one national denomination? And Jefferson wrote, and he sort of paraphrases one of their own. He says, no, there's a wall of separation. And they would have known, that was kind of a key word, Jefferson was really sort of showing solidarity by invoking the mind of Roger Williams. But here's the thing. The the wall of separation they knew was the First Amendment that said, uh, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. But what's so uh, insidious today, that wall of separation, by the way, in the Declaration, Constitution, Bill of Rights, the Mecklenburg Declaration, the Federalist Papers, nowhere, nada, zero of our governmental documents is the phrase separation of church and state. Now, whenever I speak at universities, I'll say, what's unique about America? It uh, used to be, they would say, we have freedom or whatever. If you ask secular academics or students what's unique about our country as opposed to other countries, many times you'll get the answer. They'll say, we have separation of church and state. And I'll say, what does that mean? And they'll say, uh, uh, well, well, that's just something we have. <laughs> and, and I'll say, yeah, um, which of our documents contains that phrase and they'll say, oh I don't know the Constitution no, zero. By the way, Jefferson was trying to reassure the Danbury Baptist of Connecticut that we're not going to have one national denomination. Why? Because we have the promise of the First Amendment written by Fisher Ames that the government is not going to ever obstruct or interfere with the church. In fact, now let me just say this you know, George Washington was our first president. In 1789, shortly after the adoption of the Constitution, George Washington said this, and, and thank you for letting me prattle on like this, and this is verbatim. You can Google it. George Washington said, if I had entertained the slightest apprehension that the Constitution, which was framed at the convention over which I had had the honor of presiding, if I had entertained the slightest apprehension that that constitution would hinder the rights of any ecclesiastical society, I myself certainly would not have signed it. Now, an ecclesiastical society, that's a church, the ecclesia. George Washington said, if I had ever thought that it would hinder the rights of any church, certainly I would not have signed it. So here's my point, folks. The founders did not envision freedom from religious expression. They envisioned freedom of. And, and you can be Catholic, Baptist, Protestant, Wiccan, whatever, but what we can't let people do is tear down the foundation that gives them the freedom to walk around safely, stably, as a non-believer See, I have people ask me this question, Matt. They'll say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a gay atheist or I'm a transgender Muslim. I'm like, okay. So you right-wingers, you want to force me to be a Christian. I'm like, nope. You don't want to be a Christian. You don't have to be a Christian. If you are determined to go to hell, that is your prerogative. But what we shouldn't let you do is, is dismantle the backdrop that gives you the freedom to safely walk around as a non-heterosexual atheist or whatever. If you you want what we've had, which is freedom, prosperity, stability, if you want what we've had, you have to tolerate what gave it to us and without argument. And I I know historians, sociologists, I correspond with a twice Pulitzer nominated sociologist in Texas Jew, Christian, all of them, they will agree with what I'm saying, Matt, what gave us freedom, liberty, prosperity, stability, like it or not, was a biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. We lose that at our own peril.
1: The thing that it's pretty superficial, but it's one of the details that I remember learning about separation of church and state in Jefferson. At the time that this letter was written, Jefferson is attending worship services in the Capitol. There, there was a congregation meeting in the House Chambers, I think. And Jefferson, now who knows if he was a believer or not? Someone would say he was a deist who didn't trust Christ. We don't know, whatever. But uh, he was attending and kind of giving his blessing to, at least when he was president, maybe that's not when he wrote this letter, this idea that a Christian gathering could meet in the House chambers yeah. on Sunday, which if he meant separation of church and state the way that we interpret it today, uh, that, that would not have been happening.
2: Exactly, exactly. Do you know, um, Jefferson at one point went to Congress to raise like $15,000 to send Bibles and missionaries to the western states to try to share the gospel with the Indians. And um, when Congress, um, they gave part of the money but not all of the money, then he raised it privately. Now here's a a sitting president who wants to use government money to send Bibles and paid missionaries to the West. Uh, Let me say this too about people that, um, they love to invoke Jefferson the, the deist, they believe. By the way, a great book, by Dr. Jerry Newcomb and Dr. Peter Lilback is called Doubting Thomas, question mark. What what a lot of people don't know, and and it's really trying to get to the belief system of Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. I personally think, I'm gonna say there's a better than 50% chance that Jefferson was a Christian. And listen to this, Um, in his final years in the Charlottesville, Virginia area, by the way, he started the University of Virginia UVA. I've, I've been there. First position he hired not only because he found the person he wanted, but very symbolically. The, Je- nothing about Jefferson was an accident. Mm-hmm. Very meticulous guy. And even one of my friends who passed away, Christopher Hitchens, was an atheist. We debated, we corresponded. He wrote a book called Thomas Jefferson, The First American. And Hitchens, in this book, says And and Hitchens was an avowed atheist. He was was a a contradiction in some ways, pro-life. Look, I knew Hitchens. He said, America was founded as a Christian nation. And Jefferson was not a deist. Now, in the last 10 years of his life in Charlottesville, Virginia, well, first of all, Jefferson, the first position he hired at UVA was a chaplain no accident there, very symbolic, because Jefferson believed that, you know, education begins with the acknowledgement of God. And and now, the founders would use words like the, the great architect or the divine creator, you know. They might not talk about Jesus as much as you or me, although they did sometimes. But Jefferson, in the last decade of his life, was a reader in an Anglican church in Virginia, and for almost an entire decade, first of all to be ordained, he went through a theological exam that would probably be tough sledding for even most ministers today, but among his duties on Sunday morning, he would be the reader of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty Maker. So here's the thing, I've got to ask people, would a deist Who was meticulous. Yes, who, I mean, like nothing this guy did was insignificant. It was all very purposeful. Get up, go to church every Sunday, every 52 weeks for almost a decade to stand up and be the guy to read the Apostles' Creed. This is no nominal, casual dabbler in religion. Um, I would encourage people to read the Lilback Newcomb book. But by the way, I interviewed a lady on my radio show, um, and she wrote a book called The Faith of Our Founding Father, The Spiritual Life of George Washington. Now Washington kept a morning and evening prayer journal, and I'll give you one entry. Um, Tell me about how uh, much of a skeptic this would be. George Washington, in his prayer journal, this is how his prayers would begin, Heavenly Father, before whom I may appear only if wrapped in the robes of righteousness of thy dear son Jesus, dot, dot, dot. Wow. This is George Washington's prayer journal. Heavenly Father, before whom I may appear only if wrapped in the righteous robes of thy dear son Jesus. He
1: understood the gospel. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Like, this is not a skeptic that writes prayers like this. Right. And, and hundreds of prayers. So that, uh, this lady, she did her best to, you know, collate and copy Washington's prayer journal. And I, I interviewed her on the radio. Now look, here's the point. We're in 2022 and I know our home is in heaven. I know America is not perfect, but I'm so glad that we are the inheritors of a nation not perfect, but we really were a gospel-centric country, and I believe we were at our best when when we were. May I share one more quote? I know we're probably horribly over time.
1: No, there's no time, and I've actually got a totally different subject I want to bring up shortly, but...
2: 1954, Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren, Mm -hmm. might have heard of the Warren Commission. They looked into the assassination of JFK. So, 1954, he's interviewed by Time Magazine, Chief Justice Earl Warren, and this is a quote, and again, this is no raving right-wing evangelical. He said, quote, No one can read the history of our country without realizing that the good book and the spirit of the Savior have from the beginning been our guiding genius. I believe as long as we do not deviate from them, no great harm can come to us. End of quote.
1: 1954.
2: Now, Chief Justice Rowan, the good book and the spirit of the Savior have from the beginning been our guiding genius. As long as we do not deviate from them, no great harm can come to us. We were a Christian, we are a Christocentric country. Mm. Now, uh, let's make sure that little fire doesn't go out.
1: Amen. So the place is filling up a little bit we're hearing some background noise and if you got it do you have ten more minutes yeah okay or whatever it takes um at lunch this is a totally different uh direction that we're going here at lunchtime we were talking about music and music preferences and we're talking about freedom and liberty in christ and 35 years ago yesterday an album that was hugely influential in my life which people are maybe not going to be happy to hear this some of them at least was Def Leopard Hysteria, a rock and roll band from the 80s, 1987. And uh, it starts out with a song that opens up like the Bible does. In the beginning, God created man, but then it kind of deviates from there. And we kind of had a conversation at lunchtime about what is it okay for a Christian to watch or listen to? And if there is some variation in that, how should we talk about those things like I like going to movies yeah. and if I stand in front of a group like this at the Bible conference and say I was at the the most recent Marvel movie and I thought it was great because of X Y or Z but there might have been some things in it that offend the sensitivities of other believers that are in the room or I put a post up about Def Leppard's album turning 35 years old definitely
2: Le- a- uh, Matt Reister I don't know you anymore. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> kidding.
1: So so what, uh, and, and we don't need to recreate that conversation from lunch, but I'm just thinking what, what kind of wisdom do we have about how we live in the world as Christians without contaminating ourselves in a way that would be sinful and without causing others to stumble, those kind of things? Oh, well, great question. And, uh, and the reason I'm asking you this is because you're clearly a, a secular music fan in some way, shape, or form. You, sure. We talked about Elvis at lunch. We talked about the Beach Boys. Yeah. Uh, what about all that?
2: Well, if you ever are on James Dobson's radio show, when you're sitting in the studio waiting for the recording to begin, if you hear music in your headphones, it's going to be two Beatles albums, The Beatles 62 to 66 famously called the Red Album, and 67 to 70, famously called the Blue Album. And
1: Dobson picks that?
2: Yeah, he loves the Beatles. And I remember one time I was sitting there and I was like, wow, and I know these records because my sister and I had them. I said, you like the Beatles? And Dr. Dobson said, well, yeah. He said, I was coming along and he said, you know, you gotta admit their music is great. And I said, yeah, it is. And so, you know, um, I think as a Christian, and again, you know me, Matt, and I know you, of course, I believe in standards and righteousness, yeah. and um, my wife and I have walked out of the theater. I mean, if if there's a movie and you know there's like nudity or immorality, I've walked out of movies. But I really do think, for one thing, we are we are free to appreciate the arts, and and I'm just going to say it: there was a lot of rock and roll music that was very excellently done and and artistic, and some heavy metal too that was just flat out beautiful. Now, I'm not saying that we condone the lifestyle of the performers. My goodness, there have been a fair amount of gospel singers that were up there singing, you know, How Great Thou Art, and turns out they were living very immoral lives. So, acknowledgement of excellence in art, acknowledgement of beauty wherever beauty turns up, Um, That doesn't mean we're condoning the lifestyle of the performer or the playwright. And and I think lyrics are important. I know when when I became a believer, I had certain records. And, I, I mean, I was in a number of bands, and I performed these songs, like some of the songs by Jim Morrison and The Doors that were blasphemous and took the Lord's name in vain, and I threw those records out. But, but I want to say this, um, Francis Schaeffer was a great Christian thinker, I think he died about 85 or 86. He wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Disaster, and he was talking about in the 1950s he saw the rise of, uh, of a biblical fundamentalism that while we, we should affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, and I, I believe in inerrancy and there is no salvation but through Jesus. So we are fundamental or conservative in the sense of Jesus is the one and only Savior. The Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Absolutely, absolutely. But Christians pulled away from the arts. And just like when Christians pull away from the public square, into that vacuum comes some very undesirable forces. Well, Schaefer said the great evangelical disaster, and this was, he wrote this probably 50 years ago. He said, if we abandon Hollywood, we abandon the arts, we, uh, we don't teach our kids appreciation but discernment, then what's gonna go into that void? The church, you know, music and theater was really given to us by the church, but we've let the world have the reins of it. Hmm. Now, all of that to say this, I think Christians are free. Bill Gaither said this. I've interviewed Bill Gaither, and, and one time we had a conversation about, is there such a thing as Christian metal? And Bill Gaither, who we all love, he said, we can't say one beat is anointed and, and another beat isn't, but we do need to have discernment about the lyrics or the yeah. words. And I think that so if something's like immoral or, or foul language, I don't listen to that. Yeah. But um, I, I really I think we we have freedom in Christ. Did you ever listen by
1: chance to Sting? Oh, of the police. The police, yeah, Sting. He's yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, a he's one of we're recording a podcast right. right now. Mm-mm. So we uh, Sting is one of my favorite artists. Yeah. And Sting is a deep writer. You can tell he's a deep thinker. I don't know. Are you familiar with any of his music? Yeah,
2: um, I went to see him in concert a couple of times, actually. I haven't yet. I'd like to. I'm not a huge fan, but yeah, he he is very deep.
1: Um, one of the things I've noticed listening to his music, and you see this. I'm just using this as an example, but you can see this back to our point about everything it, at some degree displays the glory of God. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless it's just our outright sin, right? Mm-hmm. But Sting has some some music. He's clearly as many artists are. He's clearly exposed to and understands the Bible, the gospel. You know, a lot of times they draw from scripture as the inspiration for songs and movies and poems.
2: By the way, do you remember the, the lyrics to the song King of Pain?
1: Yeah. That's
2: great poetry. I was an English major. I love poetry. And, um, that's really wrestling about the problem of evil. And there's, um, you know, a little plant struggling on a high rock wall. There's a tattered flag on a flagpole. Um, He's trying to wrestle, why is the world like this? Why is the world broken? And again, I'm not endorsing everything he's ever said or done, but he is a deep thinker. He is a, a, at times, incredibly profound poet.
1: Yeah, so, and and there are sometimes, there's a song uh, that's escaping me the title right now, but if you were listening listen to it, it could be a worship song. I mean, if you were ascribing it correctly to the Lord yeah. instead of to a woman or whatever he has it as. Um, and it's almost like he wrote the song to God and cloaked it in the superficiality of a woman, right. which sounds blasphemous, but you'd have to hear it. But anyway, my question for you is, what do you think the Lord's doing there? I mean, Sting didn't set out to write songs that evoke and reflect the glory of God. Mm-hmm. But the Lord is using Sting despite his against, against his will to bring glory to himself in some way. And, and you well, see that in the movies, in arts, in literature.
2: Well, absolutely. Inescapably, everything in this world is under the purvey of God the Creator. And the Bible says that ultimately, even the wrath of man will praise Him. Um, When Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys was crafting nine, 10, 11 part harmonies, that um, I remember I was talking to one of the the roadies on Brian's Smile Tour, and um, this guy, he didn't know me, we were just talking, he said, um, have you heard the Smile album performed before? And he said, you know, at the end of this night, I just... He said, uh, I can't believe I'm saying this. I feel like I've been to church. Um, let me just say this. Whether it's the unparalleled harmonies of the Beach Boys or the Carpenters or the um, insightful poetry of a sting and and even, you know, like Michael Jackson, oh, yeah. trying to come to grips with the man in the mirror. Yeah. See, I think people... Some of these artists that really actually made timeless, thought-provoking art, whether they knew it or not, maybe they were groping along in the dark, reaching for something and I can't even put my finger on it. They They were thinking about God. They really were. Now, Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he quotes Greek poets. To these Greek philosophers. So clearly Paul was a culturally literate Christian in his day. I think we're to be culturally literate Christians in our day. Now the human heart, I don't care who you are, you struggle with three things. Acceptance, significance, security. Why am I here? Uh, do I matter? Do I fit in? And am I safe? Where am I headed? And, and whether you've got Paul McCartney singing about Eleanor Rigby. uh, Father McKenzie wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you've got John Lennon, and and I really don't like the song Imagine, where he says, imagine, you know, there's no pain. How do we get to that world? Well, they might not have known it, but what the heart was crying for was God. Augustine said, the young man heading to the brothel is actually seeking after God. Oh, wow. Now, one last thing, and you are so patient. I know if my wife were here, she would say, you know, I've talked too much. I love it. There was a Jewish philosopher named Martin Buber, B-U-B-E-R, and he said, in every life there is I and there is thou, the I-thou distinction. What does that mean? Everybody has this hole in their soul, and they they might not be able to say, what I really need is the Lord Jesus, but everybody wants God. Now, if we don't know the true God, we'll try to install one of our own manufacture. Maybe it's sex or substances or money or achievement. Um, I talked to a guy, I was in Hollywood a few years ago. This guy had just won his first Grammy. And he said to me, privately said, I'd give everything I've ever done to know that my father loved me. Wow. See, um, that's why I, I really do think, and again, use discernment. Um, one book I read to believe, all other things I read to consider. Ah. That was Norm Geisler, a brilliant Christian figure. We need to be culturally literate. And we, we hear the angst and the cry of some of the, anybody from, you know, even... I've read some of the modern rap lyrics, yeah. and and what they're wanting, they want God. They want restoration. They want a world of love and stability and safety. Yeah. And in the mean streets of America's inner city right now, we don't find it. But what we need to tell the world, look, there is a place it can be found. It's called the Savior. And the kingdom that is to come, wherein dwells righteousness.
1: Love it. So, we're going to cut it off here, but before we do, you've got a website. Where can people follow you online or on social media? Or We cover the AFR thing. Oh, thanks.
2: Well, just my own website, which is alexmcfarland.com, and we do some radio, some TV, we're on all the social media platforms. But I want to tell you, I'm the biggest fan of Cedar Falls Bible Conference. I'm so thankful that we've gotten to know each other and um, hope to cultivate the friendship.
1: Awesome. Great thinker, stimulating conversation. I know our audience will love it and we'll do it again when you come back next year. Bless you, my friend. Thanks.
0: The CC Podcast Conversations is part of Christian Crusaders radio and internet ministry. Started in 1936 and is one of America's longest running radio ministries. We are 100% donor funded, and donations to our ministry are tax deductible. So if you are encouraged, challenged, or inspired by today's conversation, please consider making a donation on our website, ChristianCrusaders.org, or mail a check to Christian Crusaders, 7401 University Avenue, Cedar Falls, Iowa. 50613. In addition to our other podcasts, which I mentioned at the front of this episode, I want to mention two of our other ministry partners worth checking out. First, the Cedar Falls Bible Conference, equipping believers with the truth of God's Word since 1922. Visit cedarfallsbibleconference.com for free access to previous conference content or for more information about upcoming events. Second is Power to Change Digital Strategies, an online ministry partnering volunteer Christian mentors with people around the world searching the internet for answers. If you or someone you know could benefit from an anonymous online conversation with a caring Christian adult, go to issuesiface.com. Or if you would like to be a volunteer Christian mentor, please visit p2cdigital.com. That's the letter P, the number 2, and the letter C, digital.com. See our episode notes for details and links, and remember to subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and write a review. God's richest blessings to you, and thanks again for listening.